0: So today we are starting um, a brand new series, a pretty short series, only three weeks long, um, that we're going to be looking at influential women leaders in the Bible. Um, And here's why um, we want to do just a series specifically on this. Not only because it's Mother's Day, it's a good time to to start that. But in church world, um, we tend to talk primarily about some of the male historical figures in the Bible. And the reason why is because there's a lot of them. That's why it happens a lot. If you go to Moses and David and 12 disciples, Paul, there's so many of them. but the church hasn't had the best record traditionally of valuing women in our faith. So here at Impact, in case you're new here, I want you to know, not only do we believe women can be pastors, we believe women should be pastors. Um, we, not only do we believe women should be in leadership, we believe women can be in leadership, we believe they should be in leadership. We believe that the church does not function at the best it possibly can until it uses the entire body of Christ to do so. Um, so that means we ordain women here. The only other pastor here, besides myself, is Pastor Michelle. Um, and some of you might that are, are new here might be thinking, well, what about 1 Corinthians 14, and what about 1 Timothy 2? There's some verses that talk about that. And that's great questions. And we're actually going to talk about those exact verses um, in the first week of our next series in June called Viral. We're going to talk all about that. So that's your questions. Hold those questions and make sure you're here the first week of June as we talk about that. But throughout this series, we want to look at women in the Bible who are key parts of the story of of the gospel of the Bible. And next week we're going to look at Ruth, the last thing we're going to look at Esther, but today we're going to look at um, a woman named Rahab. Rahab, If you've been in church world um, for any amount of time or been in church, you probably know Rahab, but Rahab goes by a little title. It's Rahab the, and anybody know it, say it out. Rahab the what? The prostitute. That's what she's almost always referred to, either Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. And this week, I was doing some research, and I was looking at some biblical commentators, and um, I found it kind of fascinating how they talk about Rahab compared to other people in Scripture. Um, because Rahab the prostitute, she was a Canaanite. Um, for those who don't know Rahab, she was a Canaanite, which was the enemy of God's people. She was a prostitute, and she was an innkeeper. And we learn in the story how she becomes a follower of God. And here's what some biblical commentators talk say about Rahab the prostitute. One said she was a shady lady, okay? Just because it rhymes to me, it's true, but that's fine. Shady lady. Um, Another one said this, here's a quote. We may be appalled, use the word appalled. We may be appalled that Rahab was a prostitute and a liar, uh, but she was not saved by her works, by her faith. Use the word appalled there. And another commentator um, gave an illustration of Rahab being like the rebellious teen who leaves their parents' house and rebels against their their parents and eventually gets themselves in a really terrible situation. I saw that too. But I want to remind you of something especially with this culture, what we're reading about. Women in this culture had zero rights. Women were property, zero rights. And in the Canaanite culture, it's even worse. In the Canaanite culture, if you owed a debt to the government and you couldn't pay that debt, then a lot of times you had to sell your children, including your daughters. So yes, Rahab was a prostitute, but my guess is it wasn't a prostitute out of choice. My guess is a prostitute out of human trafficking is why she was a prostitute. And I, don't, I notice we don't call any of the other male figures in the Bible with their title either. We say Rehob the prostitute. We don't say Abraham the terrible husband, even though he was a terrible husband. He left his, his wife twice with Pharaoh to save his butt. That's what he did. That's a terrible husband. We don't call Moses, Moses the murderer, but he was a murderer. We don't call David, David the adulterer, do we? But he was an adulterer. We don't call Peter, Peter the denier, but he denied. So can you imagine being known by a time period that you regret? where a time period that you made mistakes, or a time period you had you put yourself in a situation and you were in a situation that you are ashamed of forever. A mistake that you've made forever. I mean, think back at like the earliest time that you um, were embarrassed. Maybe at school something happened and you were embarrassed. And the first time I, I can remember, I was in first grade. Um, this is actually like the earliest memory I have, and it's like a traumatic one. Um, it was when I was embarrassed. So. I was sitting in class, and I've always been a, I have always been—I was always a kid that I hated getting in trouble. I would do anything I could to not get in trouble. So I was sitting there, and the rule at our school was if somebody's name was on the chalkboard that they were in the bathroom, and you cannot go until that person comes back. So I was sitting there, and I had to go to the bathroom. Um, but Raymond had already written his name on the chalkboard. It was in the bathroom, so I had to wait. Um, so I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, I got to go. And I look, and Raymond's name's still there. I was like, oh, I can't go yet because Raymond... It's not coming back from the bathroom. And then I'm getting to a point where it's like, I'm, I'm going to pee my pants if I don't go to the bathroom soon. Raymond's name is still there. I can't go, though. If I was smart enough, I would have looked around and saw that Raymond had come back 20 minutes ago and just forgot to raise his name. But not me. I'm just looking at the name. And I was so scared to be getting in trouble that I just sat there and peed my pants. Sat there and just went everywhere. And then I was embarrassed. So then I was like, okay, what am I going to do? I don't even want to notice this. So I got on my hands and knees and I was trying to, I was sweeping it under the rug, basically. I was sweeping it under my desk hoping that no one would catch it. I'm just like, please, hope no one sees it. And then, I don't know what my plan was, by the way. Was this going all day rock pee pants all day and just think it'd be fine? So I stood underneath there, and I act like I was working. I was like, okay, hopefully no one notices the rest of the day that my wet pants are wet and there's a bunch of pee be- underneath my desk. And then the person who sat next to me was, was a girl, I don't remember her name, and she was at, doing carpet time. And she came up, and I was like, I hope she hadn't I hope she hadn't noticed. And of course, first person she does goes, ew, you peed your pants! And the whole class looks... I had to go to the office. Um, someone had to come and bring me extra pants. It was so embarrassing. But luckily, it's my first memory. That's my first memory. But luckily, the the my rest of my classmates never brought it up. It just never got brought up. Besides, like the first couple days, they brought it up for sure. But they never brought it up. But imagine if my entire class decided to call me, "Hey, there's Eric the Pee Pants. There's Eric the guy who pees his pants all the time." Imagine what could have that. Yeah, I shouldn't have told you guys that because now you might tell me. So. But imagine, imagine that happened to me all first grade. And then I go back to the same school and they keep calling me that. Imagine what could happen to like my self-esteem and my just how I feel like being known as the kid who peed his pants in first grade, being known as that for my entire school year. Luckily, I didn't, that label wasn't attached to me. But some of us, we weren't as lucky. There's a label that got attached to you by friends or by your school or by your family. Maybe it's, they haven't even given you that label, maybe you just feel that label. And that label has stuck with you for a while. When we read the story of Rahab, Rahab the prostitute, which is her label, I see another example of a huge list of examples of the least likely person to accomplish the will of God accomplishing the will of God. If God can use Abraham the terrible husband and Moses the murderer and David the adulterer and Peter the denier and Rahab the prostitute, then he can use you and me too. So today we're going to be talking Joshua chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, Joshua chapter 2. Let me give you some background before we get to it. Um, Moses at this point had freed the Israelites. You might know the story of, of the Israelites and, and the Red Sea. And they're, at this point they have wandered the desert 40 years um, trying to get to the promised land. That's the land that they were, they were promised um, by God that they were going to get to. They're wandering the desert 40 years. But before Joshua 2, Moses dies and Joshua, who is his assistant, takes over. Joshua is the man who's going to lead the Israelites into the promised land. But first, they have to take care of the Canaanites. The Canaanites are in the city of Jericho, and they need to take over because they're the ones that inhabit the city. So before Joshua decides to go to battle against the Canaanites, um, he sends two spies, two spies into the city, and that's where you pick up. So Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So throughout this entire story, Joshua chapter 2, we see how Rahab helps. Um, We really see six different types of Rahab. Six different types that I think can help all of us as we think of how we can apply this to our life. Here's the first one. The unlikely host. Rahab was the unlikely host. The Israelites had the law. And the law told them this is what they do with prostitutes. They despise prostitutes. They reject prostitutes. They stone prostitutes to death. And even in Canaan, um, Rahab would have been considered a social outcast for occupation. But the spies, they end up here. How do, how do they end up here? Well, in ancient times, um, the places where, where prostitutes were or brothels would also double as um, inns and taverns. So if you are a stranger in a city, a good place to be anonymous is here this inn and tavern. And if you want to get some information, this is also a great place to go because you could ask people about what's happening. Ask them as you're preparing, doing some recon. So Rahab, as we will see later on, shows hospitality to these strangers, people that, they, that she does not know. She hosts them, she sets herself, and because she hosts them, she sets herself up, she sets herself up to be in the perfect position to be used by God. What if we saw ourselves as the unlikely host? What if we saw ourselves as people who showed hospitality to everyone, including strangers. People that by our love, that they that they will know God a little more just by the way we love them, how we are kind to them, the kindness and hospitality we show to other people. Because you never really know. You never know how God is trying to use you simply by being kind, simply by showing love. And I found in my life, if you look for an opportunity to be the host, if you look for an opportunity to show hospitality and to show love, if you look for that opportunity, it pops up all the time. You'll have that neighbor that just kind of sticks out to you. That's like, you don't really talk to them much, and they seem like they might even be like not that nice. And, but maybe it's like maybe they just need someone to actually talk to them and, and love with them. Or maybe it's that waiter or waitress that seems distracted and seems like they're really bad at their job, but maybe they just need someone to show them kindness. Maybe it's that coworker who keeps themselves. Or maybe it's this, and I know this is this is nuts, but maybe it's that, that person that comes to church and just sits by themselves and doesn't talk to anybody. Maybe it's our job and your job to be hospitable, to show kindness to anyone. When you look for it, you will find it. We are called to show kindness and hospitality, just like Rahab, the unlikely host. Here's another description we see of Rahab. Rahab, the unlikely helper. The unlikely helper. So the two spies, they arrive, and word gets out um, to the king of Jericho that they are at Rahab's place. So the king sends word to Rahab about the two spies. So they come out, and Rahab at this point has a choice. He has, they have, she has a choice. She can either give up the spies, because the word is out, the king thinks that they're in there, or she can decide, you know what, I'm going to align myself with the God of Israel, and I'm going to keep them there. And this is what she chooses in Joshua chapter four, uh, 2, verse 4. Yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So Rahab here lies. And um, as a pastor, this makes me like, have to really think. Like, hold on. So she lies. Seems like she's honoring God. But there's also a verse in the Bible that talks about lying being a sin. Did I just find a contradiction here? Like, what, where are we at in this? Because Proverbs 12 says that lying lips are an abomination of the Lord. But yet, Rahab lies, and it seems to honor God by, by doing it. And I so I looked up some scholars, um, and some said, well, God didn't justify Rahab's lie um, here. She he, They just used it, and God uses everything, even even mistakes. And, and Rahab was in transition. I saw that a lot. But there are other examples of righteous people lying or or to wicked people for God's greater good. I mean, you look at Exodus 1. You can look at Hebrews 11. But here's what I know, and here's what I think is important to realize. We have to be very careful, very careful when we make anything black or white. This is right. This is wrong. And we have no room for discussion. We have no room for the Holy Spirit. We have to be very careful. Because let me give you some examples. Murder is wrong, right? It says in the Ten Ten Commandments. But what if somebody breaks into your house and is about to hurt your family? There has to be room. A well, uh, line's wrong, but what if you live in Europe during World War II and you're hiding Jews? Is it wrong then? So I believe that a righteous lie is for God's greater good and never our greater good. It is always goes back to our motive in our heart. If you look at Jesus, he would talk to the Pharisees who made it black and white and said, here's what you're supposed to do, here's what you're not supposed to do. You know, they had the wrong heart. They used the system against other people to get what they wanted and Jesus spoke against that. He said, hey, the law says do not commit adultery, but if you do it in your heart, then you've also committed adultery. The law says do not murder, but if you hate someone in your heart, then you've also committed murder. It goes back to the heart and the motive. Here's what we know. Rahab lies here to protect the two spies and doing so by her lie aligns herself with these two spies and with the Israelites. When you help other people, especially when you help others that are less fortunate than you, You are aligning yourself with the mission of God. It says this in James' religion that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You want to be more like Christ? You want to live more like Christ? You want to align yourself with Christ? You do it by helping others. By finding someone who has a need that you can help meet and meeting it by helping those who cannot return the favor, by helping those that don't even know you're helping them. You want to align yourself with the God of the universe, that's how you do it, the unlikely the unlikely helper. Um, number three, number three, the unlikely convert. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up uh, listening to only Christian music um, when I was a kid. Um, I listened to bands like DC Talk and Newsboys, stuff like that. And as I got older, I wanted to start listening to like heavier bands and like I wanted to get like I, I kind of liked like hardcore music and I like punk music and alternative so I kind of want to listen to more of that but I was like in middle school um, but my parents still wanted me to listen to Christian music but they didn't care what genre it was it could be hardcore screaming as long as it was, it was about Jesus they were fine with it so what we did and this is for some of you that are younger gonna be like this happened back in the day but this is what we would do we went to the Christian bookstore so already some people are like what's that there was stores called His Way Christian bookstore some of you okay all right, there we go. Some of you know that. We would go there. I was in middle school, and they would have charts. The chart would say, if you listen to this band or like this band, then try this band. It was basically saying, here's the alternative to whatever music you're listening to. Here's the Christian alternative. So it would say, um, if you listen to Blake 182, try MXPX. If you listen to Metallica, try Living Sacrifice. If you listen to Nickelback, then leave the store because no one likes Nickelback. Okay? It would say something like that. And at the time, I, would, I was all in. I was like, any of these bands, I'm buying as many CDs as possible. And it kind of did a disservice to these bands because it put them as the Christian alternative. They were just good bands that also happened to be Christians. But then I got older. Um, I was getting out of middle school into high school. My parents at that point said, you know what? I'm gonna, we're going to ease up on what music I listen to. Listen to whatever you want. So then I started listening to whatever I want. And one of the first bands, I've talked about this band before, but one of the first bands I really started listening to that I got really into that was the complete opposite of Christian was a band called Korn spelled K-O backwards R-N, you know, because we're cool. That's how they do it. And if you don't know Korn, Korn was probably the least Christian band I could have listened to. They were so far from being a Christian band. They were a new metal band and new metal band for some reason. That's also why they, they spelled it that way. And back in middle school and high school, they were so popular. Like everyone liked them, and I really liked them a lot. So even though I had all this Christian music, I also had another binder of CDs full of my non-Christian music that was led by Korn because I loved them. And then the craziest thing happened. I'm at youth group one day, and someone comes up to me because they know I'm a big corn head, I guess. And they say, hey, did you hear about the guitar player of Corn?" And again, this is the most secular band possible. Like, this is the least Christian band um, possible. And I was like, no, what happened? He's like, well, the, the guitar player, uh, his name's Brian Brian Welch, um, he became a Christian, and He quit. It's like, what? And in my head, it, it was impossible. There's no possible way that any member of, of this of this really secular band would become a Christian. And so I looked up his story, and here's the story. He said that he had a daughter. He was a, as big of a rock star as possible as you can get. And he was also completely addicted to crystal meth. And a friend told him this verse. Um, it's funny that, that Christy actually said this verse. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And this verse stuck out to him, but again, while he's doing crystal meth. And eventually, weeks later, he goes to church. He learns about forgiveness. He learns about a God of grace and he gives his life to Christ. Then he said he went home and did more crystal meth. And then he's sitting there after he does his crystal meth and he starts praying to God and saying, God, I can't stop doing this. I'm completely addicted. I cannot stop it. I have so much pain in my life. If you're real, take it from me. And he's, and I watched a video this week. He said he's felt this, the love of a perfect father that he never had just poor on him. He threw all of his drugs away. He became a Christian, quit corn. And that was years ago. He's still a Christian Today. And in high school, for me, someone who's who was listening to these bands that I, that I know is the complete opposite of what, to see a guy from that band, eventually two guys from that band became Christians, it was, um, to me, I was like, if they can do it, then anyone can become a follower of Jesus. It's not just for the people who grew up in a Christian home, anyone can eventually recognize and receive the love of God. Rahab at this point is the most unlikely person to become a follower of Jesus just simply because of her profession. But yet, we see her follow God. So it says Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sheon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear of everyone's courage and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Here's what Rahab's doing. She's doing two things here. One, she's giving great intel to these spies because now these spies know that, oh, they're scared. They've already basically lost the battle because they don't think they can win it anyways. great intel. And number two, she's declaring her faith. Rahab is an outcast. Rahab is a prostitute with the past. A past that the Israelites would have seen as a grave sin. It, Rahab is a Canaanite who is the number one enemy against God and his people. But here, Rahab declares everything, everything I have heard about this Yahweh. I stand in awe and I believe in the one true God. If God can change a Canaanite prostitute like Rahab, he can change anyone. I have friends in my life that I have been praying for for a while for salvation, to, for them to meet Jesus. Praying for them for a while. Um, some I've known for a very long time that are a complete opposite, some that I've known more recently. And there's times where I'm like, why do I keep praying? It's not possible. They they are, they are, Their heart's too hard with it. They, they don't even believe in a higher power, let alone anything else. But here's what I remind myself, and I'm gonna remind you, for the people that you've been thinking about, people that you've been praying about. Number one, we don't change anyone. You need to remember that. We don't convert anyone. That is not what we do. Our job is simply to be used by God to tell other people about the hope we found. The best scripture I've heard is it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That is our job. We do not change anyone. We do not convict anybody. We do not com- convert anybody. God uses us to tell other people about the, the love of God, and the Holy Spirit does the work, not us. So whenever I have an opportunity to talk about my faith to the people I'm praying about, I take it. I don't force it, but I take it anytime I have an opportunity. Whenever I have an opportunity to invite them to church, I take it. Whenever I have an opportunity to invite them to around church people, I take it. Whenever I have an opportunity to, to show love, the love of God that I have in my life to them, I take it. So who in your life is the unlikely convert? Is someone who you don't think could ever meet Jesus? Whoever that is that came to your mind right now, the Spirit is speaking to you. That that is the person that we are to show love to, show the love of God to them. And it may be unlikely. It may be very unlikely, just like it was an unlikely It was unlikely that a prostitute from an enemy nation would start following God, just like it was unlikely that a rock star drug addict would start following Jesus, just like it was unlikely that someone who has had the struggles you have had and that I have had and has had the past that you've had that I have had, just like it's unlikely for us to also start following Jesus. God doesn't see unlikely like we do. If he did, no one would be likely. Everyone in life needs hope and purpose and we can only find it through the grace of Jesus Christ. So we need to show others the grace that we have found that we don't deserve, that we did nothing to earn it, the hope that we have found, and the purpose that we have, show it to them so that way the spirit can speak to them, the unlikely convert. Then we all see with Rahab the unlikely hero. Jericho's search party is looking for the, these spies, and the, eventually they, they leave, and the gates close, and that means that the spies can can not leave because the gates are closed. They can't leave out the way they came in, so they have to find another way out. But luckily, Rahab's inn is right by the outside of the wall, so she's able to help them. And here's how she becomes the hero in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And that you will save us from death Our lives for your lives The man assured her If you don't tell what we are doing We will treat you kindly and faithfully When the Lord gives us the land So she let let them down by a rope Through the window For the house she lived in was part of the city wall She said to them Go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you Hide yourselves there three days Until they return And then go on your way not only does Rahab become the hero by saving these two spies' lives, but she saves her own life, and she saves her entire family's life in the process. Rahab had enough faith that she knew if she acted in obedience toward the God of Israel, this, this God, this Yahweh, that God would save her and her family. And that's exactly what happens. And we skip to verse, uh, chapter 6, the Israelites, they take the city, they burn the whole thing down, they, they destroy everybody in there, but they remember Rahab. Here's what it says in Joshua chapter 6 verse 25. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, again always that label there, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Rahab leaves her past, leaves her past community that was against God, leaves her past occupation that dishonored God and is welcomed and accepted into the family of God. If you are follower of Jesus, that's exactly what happens with you. That you, when you repent of your sin, God forgives you and he adopts you into the family of God. And once you're in the family of God, it is your job to help other people become part of the family of God. We also see two other things. We see the unlikely example. See, we don't, the story of Rahab ends here. We don't really hear much more about Rahab here We don't really know much in in Joshua, but we do see her appear in the New Testament a couple times. And every time, and there's two times that Rahab is used in the New Testament that is used as an example of faith. Again, this is a Canaanite prostitute female in an enemy territory that is used as as an example of what faith looks like. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Then James, the the brother of Jesus, says this in his letter, James chapter two, verse twenty-five. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. The, The enemy, the spiritual enemy that we all have, is very good at reminding us of our past. Very good at reminding me of my past. He's really good at making me feel unworthy really good at making me feel ashamed. He's really good at making me feel not good enough. And you know why he's really good at, it, at all that? Because all that's true. I am not worthy. I am unworthy. I, I do have shame from the ways i messed up in my past. Not just in my rebellious stages when when I was younger, but the ways I continue to mess up. I am not good enough. But that's the point. God knows every mistake I have made, and there's plenty. And every mistake I'm going to make which hopefully won't be that much, but it'll probably be a fair amount. Every mistake, yet still, knowing everything I've done, he sent his son to die, even if it was just for me, Would have sent his son for me. He still accepts me into the family of God. And I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know where you come from. I don't know the mistakes that make you feel unqualified for the grace of God. I don't know what they are, but I know that you aren't the only ones with them. And if we're all being honest, we all have a list of reasons why we don't deserve salvation. But God doesn't give us salvation based on what we deserve. God gives us salvation based on how he loves us. God sent Jesus to pay for our sins so that even you and even me not only can have salvation, but can be used by God. How do we know that? Just look at Rahab. See, we are the only ones We are the only ones that take the past and mistakes that we've made and waste them. We're the only ones. That's not what God does. God saves you from your past, gives you a new direction, and they can give you a purpose because of your past, through your past. He can can use you to help people that are going through the same struggles that you have been redeemed from. We're the ones who waste it, not God. If God can use Rahab with her past as an example, God can use you and me as an example. And then the last way we see Rahab, the unlikely legacy. Not only is Rahab an example to us of God's love and forgiveness no matter what your past looks like, not only is she an example of what real faith looks like like we read about in Hebrews and James, but Rahab's legacy goes well beyond the book of Joshua. The book of Matthew, Matthew writes the, the genealogy of Jesus. And a lot of times we skip over this pretty quick because it's a bunch of names. This person, this person, this person, this person. talks about how... Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, goes on. But then, if you go to verse 5, look who is mentioned. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab is in the family tree of Jesus Christ. And if Rahab hadn't placed her trust in God that day, she would have perished with Jericho. Instead, she gets married, she has children becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David and becomes the ancestor to Jesus Christ. When God forgives you of your past, he completely forgives you. He then gives you a new future, a legacy for you to build in his name. And I don't know if you noticed, there's only one time that Rahab is mentioned that doesn't have her label in Matthew 1, 5. The one time that she is fully connected to Jesus. She's no longer Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot. She's Rahab, the ancestry of Jesus. When you are connected to Jesus, your future is bigger than your past. You can only let go of your past when your past is confronted with the future in Jesus. And God doesn't ask you to clean yourself up first before you are redeemed. God doesn't ask you to fix yourself and then show up. God doesn't say, well, you better save yourself. No, God says, bring exactly who you are, bring the mess that you have made, bring everything that needs to be fixed, bring it all to me, and then I will wash it away because I'm the only one that can actually do it. I'm the only one that can actually forgive you. I'm the only one that can actually give you grace, and I'm the only one that can give you a hope in this life. Bring all of it to me, and I will give you a future legacy. But he cannot reconcile what we won't bring. We have to bring it. You don't need to fix it. You just need to bring it. So as the worship team comes up, we get ready to close. Whatever that is, that, that label that you feel is connected to you, whether you were told this label, whether you just feel this label, whatever that is, that label that Rahab had, Rahab the prostitute, that was gone when she met Jesus. I want to ask you to think about that. Why do you have that label? Why do you have that label? I'm just the, the angry person. I'm the one that's addicted. I'm the one who's just a terrible spouse. I'm the one who just, I'm a terrible parent. Whatever it is, that label that we have there and take the mess that you have made that needs to be fixed and stop trying to fix it yourself and instead say, God, just like the the guitar player from Corn did, God, if you're real, I'm giving it to you. So what can I do with it? I can't do anything with it. I'm asking you to fix it. I'm asking you to help me with this. God, if you are real and you really have grace and love for me, then I'm giving it to you. So as we, as we pray, I'm going to give you just a moment, just between you and God, whatever that label is, whatever that past is, whatever that thing is that you can't just give up. I want you to ask God right now, God, take it from me. It is yours. I am surrendering it all to you. I am not living in my past anymore, but I'm living in the future that you have planned for me. God, I'm surrendering it to you. Take this time. Dear God, we just lay it all at your feet. We surrender it all to you. We surrender whatever it is that we're struggling with. We surrender that past that we're trying to escape. Surrender that pain that we can't get over. God, we lay it at your feet right now. God, I pray that you reveal yourself to us. You speak to each one of us. God, we know that you are the God who gives us a purpose, gives us hope, gives us comfort, and gives us grace. God, today, the sign of faith, we surrender all of our past, all of our labels, all of our pain to you. Thank you being the God who can handle the past that we have has a plan for us, has a future for us, Thank you for being the God who loves all of us. No matter how unlikely we are, you love us. You love us just as we are. We don't have to fix anything first. We don't have to clean ourselves up first, but you love us just as we are. And you love us enough to help us grow. Help us look more like you. And thank you for your grace and your hope. In your son's name, amen. Let's say Let's sing this closing song together.